0: Thanks for joining us for another message from Southland Church. If you'd like any information about our church, check out our website at mysouthland.com. We've spent the last few weeks in the Old Testament, in fact, in the Old Testament book of Isaiah, looking at his word, uh, looking at uh, how uh, God inspired Isaiah to prophesy regarding the coming of Jesus and the titles that he would bear as he came. So I thought for today, As we begin a new year, we'd stay in the Old Testament and look forward to 2021 as we uh, definitely let go of 2020. And uh, also, of course, as we move into our month of prayer and fasting, as you've just heard about. Isaiah is known as one of the five major prophetic books in the Old Testament, the others being Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, and Daniel. There are 12 minor prophetic books, Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, which happens to be the shortest book in the Old Testament for you trivia people, Uh, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi. I know it's Malachi. It just looks like Malachi. Three quick things. All but one of those 17 prophetic books are named after their inspired authors. Except for Lamentations, it's the one that isn't. And there's no definite proof of who wrote Lamentations, but because of biblical references within Lamentations and those outside of Lamentations, almost all scholars agree that Jeremiah was the author of that book. I've intentionally called them major and minor prophetic books. Human beings being what we are, it's been an easy jump for all of us to shorten the reference to calling them major and minor prophets, which leads, of course, to the second point we jump to. Perhaps I can best represent it to you by asking you a question right now. What do you hear? Where does your mind go when you hear me say there's major prophets and then there's minor prophets? I think if you're like most of us who've grown up in our society with those two words, major and minor, you've attached more importance, more respect, if you will, to those described as being major. After all, in sports, we have the minor leagues, and then there's also the major leagues, right? And all the attention goes to the major leagues. You haven't really made it in the minors. Your goal is to make it to the majors. If you have a major injury, We know immediately that it's something to be taken seriously, but if it's only a minor injury, well, don't be a crybaby. Get back to work. Now, if you apply that to the major and minor prophets, to which do you attach more importance then? If you're going to read or study a book of the Bible, where don't you go? Well, not to the minors, right? But that would be a huge mistake. Because we know all Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. I've actually had people talk to me and say, well, only Paul said that, not Jesus. Imagine. All Scripture, all Scripture is God-breathed. In other words, there's no hierarchy. They are all equally important. Every word important. Every single syllable drawn from God's mouth every word, his word. So why the major and minor then? It's simply, simply to distinguish those prophetic books that are longer than those that are shorter. That's it. None is less inspired than any other. The third point is that the prophetic books in general by their very nature are the books of the bible we're most likely to skip over because there's often unusual prophetic language and seemingly constant warnings and condemnations which we'd rather avoid still let me say this even though we're barely going to scratch the surface today There is much valuable content to be stuttered in both the major and the minor prophetic books. You could say any time you spend therein will be profitable. I was waiting for that one. We we read of Christ's birth in Isaiah and Micah. We learn of Christ's atoning sacrifice in Isaiah. We read of Christ's return in Ezekiel and Daniel and Zechariah. They all, all of them, focus on the themes of God's sovereignty, God's holiness, and his love for us. For that, every single one of them is worthy of our attention and study. It would not be a good thing, for instance, to get to heaven and have Obadiah walk up to you and ask, how'd you like my book? And then you say, well, well, I, I didn't read it. It was kind of in a bad location there, and I found it kind of whiny, really. But there's more to it than that there is a reason why we need maybe more than most to submit ourselves to their words the prophets were men that god trotted out in times of history when normal went out the window does that sound familiar and everything just seemed to be out of whack it is where we find ourselves That's the role of prophets, to speak on behalf of God. To them has been given this crushing burden of being spiritually sensitive and looking to our world and seeing what God sees. People wrapped up in their own comfort. Rich people trying to get richer and looking the other way while the poor die. And all the while thinking God is really, really pleased with our lives. Every one of the prophets learned this truth about the human race. We really don't want to know the truth. We don't want to know what sin has done in our lives, in our hearts, to our compassion, to our generosity, and what it has done, in fact, to our world. We don't want anybody to tell us about misery and injustice because it might disturb us. When we were on the farm, we had a black and white border collie. One day she saw another black and white dog across the yard in the distance and charged over to say howdy. She learned a valuable lesson that day. Dogs do not have white stripes down their backs. You know, when they've got it bad, when the smell is so strong that you actually don't smell it at first. It's so overpowering that it just, you don't smell at all. And the dog has already then run past you into the house and is screaming all over the place. And then it hits you. It just overwhelms you all at once. I tried everything to get rid of the smell of skunk, but fortunately over time, the smell kind of just faded gradually. And the oddest thing was that we just kind of got used to it. Every once in a while, somebody would come over to our house to visit us, and they would walk in, and and it doesn't smell all that great in here, trying to be somewhat diplomatic. And we'd say, really, We, we can't smell anything. We just got used to it. We got used to our world like we got used to wearing a watch, like we got used to stuff that we never fixed around the house. We just didn't notice it anymore. But the prophets noticed. That was their gift. That was their burden. They see what God sees. They know what he knows. They feel what he feels. And we'd better pay attention prophets aren't interested in trying to make us feel good. If you could have invited someone over to your house to celebrate New Year's this year, and you wondered, hmm, I wonder who we should ask over to have a good time, I don't think you'd invite a prophet. Prophets will always cut the line straight, and you will quickly see where you stand on everything. Everything. That's why prophets are difficult to have around, yet each has something to teach us because it's what we need to hear. But not only do they use harsh words, Amos, for instance, called everybody cows. Prophets resort to God-led tactics that are sometimes on the edge of bizarre. Hosea marries a prostitute. Jeremiah digs up filthy, buried, unwashed underwear as object lessons to show people how unfaithful they were becoming towards God. Most of them lived in the 6th and 5th centuries before Jesus, about 2,600 years ago, give or take. They prophesied in a time when a whole nation with a history of enormous blessing, just blessing upon blessing, was completely now falling apart. The economy was going down the drain. Politics were corrupt. The moral structures of the people themselves were absolutely corrupt. The religious structures of the country were in pitiful shape. Into that kind of turbulence come prophets to identify what's going on from God's perspective, to give them insight. Now, among those prophets is Habakkuk. His work, his his book, is different from every other writing prophet in the history of Israel in that he never records saying a word to another person. All of Habakkuk is conversation between Habakkuk and God. There's not another single person involved. Israel is about to feel the overwhelming military power of the Babylonians who are moving westward and we're about to go over the borders and squash Israel. They're going to take over Jerusalem. They're actually going to burn it to the ground, destroy the temple until nothing is left standing, and then take every able-bodied man and woman and move them hundreds of miles away from home, away from their roots to Babylon and turn them into servants and slaves. Habakkuk is looking right down the mouth of this event, and he's seeing where everything is going. He's one of those people who has to ask the question, What's going on here? Why is this happening? And tell people what he sees and hears from God. Now, while these prophets had special anointing from God, I think there is a consistent pattern to their lives that we are all called to live as well in 2021. We'll use Habakkuk as our example today. The first point of the pattern I'd like to suggest to you is that they all consistently exhibit that we are to be people with passion. I mean, if there's one word that comes out over and over again as you read the prophetic books, it's passion. When the prophets get into a subject and start speaking into it, they speak with enormous energy and emotions, even sometimes fireworks. There's just passion. They will go to any extent to express their horror at what they see and feel from God. Often it's not just academic to them, they feel it in their, in their gut, personally. Jeremiah was like that. He poured his passion over the people of his time. He said, if only my head were a pool of water and my eyes a fountain of tears, I would weep day and night for all my people who have been slaughtered, who are just being trashed. Oh, that I would go away and forget my people and live in the desert. Who hasn't thought something like that? Oh, if I could just go away to a deserted island somewhere. When was the last time you burned with a passion for people like that? A passion for God's church? We need to be people of passion in 2021. We've got work to do. Habakkuk is burning because he looks into his world and he sees the horror of what evil is doing. He sees the immorality of his generation. He sees the enemy from Babylon sweeping across the border and he can't sit still. He can't go with the flow on this one. Note the pain and the passion as he begins. How long, O Lord, must I call for help? But you don't listen. Violence is everywhere. I cry, but you don't come to save. Must I forever see these evil deeds? Why must I watch all this misery? When you go back and read this yourselves, note all the seas and the watches and the looks through all this. Wherever I look, I see destruction and violence. I am surrounded by people who love to argue and fight. The law has become paralyzed, and there is no justice in the courts. The wicked far outnumber the righteous. He's saying in these verses what we've all been at least tempted, if not actually have said. Where in the world is God in the middle of all this? When you and I call ourselves godly people, another phrase would be Christ followers. One of the evidences that we're really becoming exactly that is that our passion will not let us sit still as we watch evil working its way in our world. We live in a province with the highest homicide rate per capita in the country. Three of the country's top 10 most dangerous communities live to live in are here in Manitoba. Some crimes are up 48% from a year ago we have the third highest poverty rate. When you hear about men and women who have to raise their families in squalid conditions and are being unjustly treated, when you see all sorts of just stinky stuff happening around us, do you just let it fly by? Or do you ever burn with a passion to see justice and righteousness prevail? Biblical people burn with a passion when evil appears to be having its way. Not only are we to be people of passion, we're to be people with perspective. We're gonna camp here for a while. Most of us see the surface of things. We're a surface kind of culture that measures things in terms of what we see, beauty, size, worth. To please his father, a freshman at university went out for track. He had no athletic ability, though the father had been a 1,500-meter man in his day, so he wanted to impress his dad. His first race was a two-man test in which he ran against the university champion. He was badly, badly, badly beaten. Not wanting to disappoint his father, the boy wrote home as follows. You will be happy to know, Dad, that I ran against Bill Williams, the best 1,500-meter guy in the school. He came in next to last, while I came in second. You'll have to think about that one. People with perspective, like the prophets, look underneath to the subsoil of things, into the foundation of stuff, while some look for quick causes and cures. We're to take a much higher, much longer view. During World War II, General Creighton—sorry, uh, General—yep, General, yep, General Creighton Abrams found himself and his troops surrounded. With characteristic perspective, he told his officers, "For the very first time in history, in the history of this campaign, we are now in a position to attack the enemy in any direction." Here's a real basic outline of Habakkuk. Habakkuk first asks God six specific questions along the lines that we just read. How come? Why? How long? What's going on here? Then the Lord replies. Habakkuk adds some more further follow-up questions, the gist of which follow these kind of lines. Are you just going to wink at all this treachery, God? Are we only fish to be caught and killed? But much like the questions David starts out asking God in the Psalms that he wrote, a a change of attitude comes over Habakkuk by the time he ends this second round and listens to God. We're going to come back to that in a moment. I think it's important to note the answers, really they're lessons that the Lord gives to Habakkuk here because they apply as much to us today as they did to Habakkuk back then. Yesterday and tomorrow is really the definition I want to use for history here. I'm talking big picture history. I'm talking about things that just happen and are there and will be there. Yesterday, today, and tomorrow. That's all of history. History is under God's control. He replies, look around at the nations, Habakkuk. Look and be amazed, for I am doing something in your own day. He's reminding Habby and all of us, that he is overall. There's no power above him. There's no buck stops here down the way somewhere. He is the one who started the process of time and history. He's controlling it moment by moment, and he will end it at the appropriate time. It follows then that history is following God's plan, which is for the most part way above our understanding. Something he says you wouldn't believe even if someone told you about it, Habakkuk. He's telling Habi and us that things are not always what they appear to be on the surface. He's referring specifically to Habakkuk's complaints. How can you stand by God and do nothing? But all of that pales by God's next revelation. God says, Habi, I'm raising up the Babylonians, a cruel and violent people. They will march across the world and conquer. They will do whatever they like, sweeping captives ahead of them like sand. Can you imagine how Habakkuk felt hearing this? This is no accident. This is no tragedy that has slipped somehow through God's fingers. This is no accident, though it may appear as such. God says, this didn't catch me unawares. In fact, I'm behind it. I'm the one raising them up. There's a purpose. There's a plan. I've been warning my people again and again through the prophets that I will not allow the tools of the enemy, self-satisfaction, self-sufficiency, arrogance, and pride to infest my people, my church, and bring it down. I will not stand for it. Okay, I want to take a brief time out here for a moment, if you can, for two reasons. One is, and I know this is going to get messy, if you're keeping notes, which I would encourage you to do, there is a kind of third lesson that God gives to Habakkuk here about history, but it doesn't come right at this moment. It comes later on. So if I can ask you to kind of hold a spot for number three here so that we can kind of Walk through the chronology of the book and not mess things up. Make an arrow to come back to it at some point in time, but leave a gap, whatever you want to do. There is a number three coming. This ain't it. But first, let me ask you a couple of questions about the learning that we have now, because it has direct relevance to both 2020 and 2021. I can't tell you how many times in the past year I fell. I mean, I just fell on the absolute truth that God is in control that God has the last word. Have we learned that lesson? Is it part of who we are? Do we firmly believe that God is in absolute control of all of history, that it's playing out exactly in the way that God planned? How you answer that has huge implications and whether you will have hope in 2021 rests largely on how you answer whether you can approach 2021 without fear, whether in this next year you can rest on the promises of God and serve Him wholeheartedly, because if He doesn't have the power to orchestrate all things, if He doesn't have the last word on everything, it's all for naught. See, God is in control, even when it doesn't look like it to mankind. Not only that, I can tell you, and so many of you could also testify to this, that there is no other explanation for the course my life has taken other than that God is in control. Okay, I now return us to our regularly scheduled programming. God had revealed to Habakkuk that he is raising up the Babylonians to overrun Israel. He's actually using a more wicked nation than even Israel was to teach Israel a lesson. I'm sure at that moment Habby would have responded like every one of us in the Hebrew equivalent of say what? You are behind all these things. You are behind all these things that I've just been complaining to you about? I think I need a perspective adjustment. I thought I was doing the prophet thing by complaining to you about the impending misery but I wasn't seeing things through your eyes at all. I was just lifting up our human misery. Who amongst us hasn't come face to face this past year with a perspective adjustment? I'm not even gonna bother going into details outlining all the myriad possibilities between the health issues with COVID, this disruption it has brought to every part of our lives, the changes and struggles within our church, Has there been any more common phrase than, I didn't see this coming? No, none of us did. And that's the point. Here's the key thing. God did. God did. Just as he already knows every moment of 2021 and beyond. He knows everything in store for us. So then, doesn't it make sense that we should be staying close to him? That we should, in fact, spend a month in prayer and fasting, to hear from him, connect with him, the one who truly holds every moment of our future in his hands. And that's exactly what Habakkuk does. He says, I need a higher perspective uh, than my own on this. So he says, I will climb up to my watchtower and stand at my guard post. There I will wait to see what the Lord says, and he will answer my complaint. Habakkuk gives us five steps to gaining God's perspective. The first step to gain God's perspective is we need to withdraw. Get alone in a quiet place. Spend some time with God. Habakkuk says, I'm going to climb my watchtower. I'm going to get away from everything. It's a Hebrew expression that means I've got to get alone. I've got to get off by myself. I've got to eliminate all the external distractions so I can see more clearly. Picture a fire lookout tower in the forest. Find a quiet place alone. In today's world, that can be difficult at times, especially for those of you who are at home all these days with all your children. I recently read a story about Susanna Wesley, who was the mother of 19. Yeah. 19 children. Two of her sons, Charles and John, shaped England in their day. Charles Wesley wrote over 6,000 songs and hymns. Christ the Lord is risen today, and can it be? John Wesley founded the Methodist denomination with 19 kids. How did Susanna ever, how did she ever find a quiet place? Well, this was her solution. Every afternoon, she would sit in her living room and throw her apron up over her head. The children knew that when mother threw the apron over her head in the rocking chair, she was not to be disturbed. See, where there's a will, there's a way. You can find a quiet place. If that's all that was needed for us to gain God's perspective, though, we'd all just go and buy an apron. But that's not all of it. The first step is you need to withdraw and get off by yourself, get alone with God. Jesus often withdrew to lonely places and prayed. Notice the lonely places and prayed. Jesus led a very active life, yet in spite of of all of that, it says he often withdrew. He made it a habit. If Jesus needed it, do I need to say more? I trust that in 2021, and particularly during this next month, you will make every effort you can to withdraw, to be alone with God. But there's more. Habakkuk says there's a second step. Stand at my guard post, he says. I'm going to stand at my guard post. It means I'm not going to move. I'm actually going to plant myself. I'm going to not get into a panic and run everywhere. I'm going to stay put. I'm going to stay still and wait. I'm going to withdraw, and then I'm going to wait there for a while until I see what God is doing, and then I'm going to join him. I'm going to plant myself so I can gain God's perspective. True story. A lady called American Airlines and asked the reservation clerk on the phone, how long does it take to get from Dallas-Fort Worth to Frankfurt, Germany? The clerk had to wait a moment for the information to come up on her screen, so she said, just a minute. The caller responded and said, well, thanks very much, and hung up. Most of the things that really matter in life do not happen in just a minute. They come from those who learn to wait upon the Lord. Wait upon the Lord. If you want to see things from God's point of view, you've got to have time to wait. Time to just spend with God. How do you do that? Well, let me give you one biblical technique. One of the most, one that maybe all of you for that matter know but it's never consistently thought of. We do it all the time here. We do it during our prayer summits. We do it virtually any we're spending time with God corporately. We'll do it often at the end of services. Elisha asked for soft music to be played while he tuned into God to find the answer to a question that he was bringing to God. He said, bring in the harpist. And he had a harpist play while he tuned into God. Sometimes the quickest way to tune into God is to put a Christian tune on. It shifts body and mind and emotions into kind of a lower gear so we can wait on God. Once our body is still and once our mind is quiet, then we become sensitive to actually hearing God's still small voice as he speaks to us. Some of you are saying, this sounds like transcendental meditation, Pastor. It's the exact opposite of transcendental meditation. In TM and humanist meditation, the idea is to make your mind go blank, like just go blank. The goal of taking station with God is not to make your mind go blank. The goal is to enter into community, tune in to the voice of God, so you can talk to him and he can talk to you. As an encouragement, God interjects here, Going back now, the third lesson point about history, and he does it in the next verse. The vision is for a future time. It describes the end and it will be fulfilled. If it seems slow in coming, wait patiently, for it will surely take place. It will not be delayed. Withdraw and wait because history follows God's timetable, not ours. It follows God's timetable and no one else's. Then perhaps the most pivotal step in gaining God's perspective comes up as He says, Watch. Let God give you a mental picture. Habakkuk says, I will wait to see what the Lord says to me. I will wait to see what the Lord says to me. He says, I will see what God says. It seems to me to make more sense to say, I will listen to what God says. You listen to what people say, right? You don't look at people and say, "Why?" You know, and say, "Why did he say this?" I'm going to see. Um, we don't do that. An important key to hearing God is to understand that God's voice is often visual in nature. God often speaks to us and evokes a mental picture. There are hundreds of examples, shepherd and sheep. There are hundreds of examples of this in scripture where people were praying and God would give these people a mental picture, a vision. It's all through scripture. It's one of the ways God contacts people. He gives you a picture, an image, a vision inside your head. I think that's the reason why Jesus several times says watch and pray, not listen and pray watch and pray there's a visual element to our communication with god and we need to explore that paul said i pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you may know the, the the hope to which he has called you he's not talking about physical eyes he's talking about spiritual eyes spiritual senses when you were born physically you got a set of physical senses hear taste touch smell so on you need to be born spiritually to get a set of spiritual senses, spiritual eyes, spiritual ears. Have you ever been reading the Bible? You've read a verse a dozen times, but all of a sudden it just pops out to you? God just opened your spiritual eyes. Those of you who've attended Set Free will know that as a rhema word from God to you. If you want to know more about that, please sign up. The next retreat is just at the end of the month, as Pastor Stephen was just saying. He'll love how I've worked that in there. Jesus said, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. See the kingdom of God. There's an unseen part of reality that we can only see with our spiritual eyes. But it's just as real. None of us can see God here, but we know he is. And he's more real than the walls that surround us that we can physically see. The building you are in will eventually decay, but God won't. God is saying, I want you to learn to see from my perspective. Notice what comes next. Then the Lord replied, write down the revelation and make it plain. Get the progression here. Chapter 1, Habakkuk gives his questions to God. Chapter 2, he waits, he watches. And the Lord says, here's what I want you to do. Write this down. Write it down clearly and then spread it around. Write down what I reveal to you. This is called journaling. If you want an example of it, just turn to the Psalms. In almost every one, David starts with a question to God, like, how come my enemies are prospering when I'm trying to live for you? And then he waits and he watches and he writes down God's answer. Journaling keeps you focused and lets you remember what you said to God and what God has said back to you. It's there to review so you don't have to learn a lesson over and over again. Can I encourage you, consider journaling this year. I'll be the first to say that I'm glad 2020 is behind us, but don't forget it, don't write it off. If you've been journaling, you have a gold mine of things that God has taught you, how he's changed your perspective on what is really of value, what we really need, what is most important to us. Start writing your prayers, your learnings with God, and I guarantee you, you will gain a new perspective, his perspective all of these points, how God is in control of history, how we can gain God's perspective in 2021 by withdrawing, by waiting, by watching, by writing, lead us to only one place, an outpouring of that perspective in worship. We thank God for speaking to us and giving us his higher perspective. This is what Habakkuk says in chapter 3. And actually, unlike most, perhaps you've looked and you've looked through the Psalms and there'll be a little like italic part that kind of just explains something. This is a Psalm of David or, you know, this happened when or whatever. Well, right here, like in verse one, verse one, Habakkuk simply records, this is the prayer that I sang. This is the prayer that I sang back to God. This was my act of worship. Oh Lord, how I've heard your report. Now I've heard your report and I worship you in awe for the fearful things you are going to do. Habakkuk says, now that you've spoken to me, given me this revelation, I love you all the more and I want to express my love to you. When we've asked a question and have received God's loving response and we've written it down, see things now from God's perspective, it's going to make each of us want to love the Lord more and draw us closer to himself. And here's the thing, see if you don't then find yourself completing the circle, withdrawing more, waiting more, watching more, writing more, and worshiping more all the more. And there's a third example that the prophets give us who we are to be. We are to be people with prospect. That's to be people with a future, people with a hope. Habakkuk looked at his world and said, look, folks, the world is going to be ugly for a while. God has told me the judgment of God is coming upon God's people because of bad choices and sin and evils. But in the midst of all this, there is a prospect. There is a hope. There is a future. There is a way to live in a way pleasing to God through all of this salted away all through these three chapters are wonderful little nuggets of hope and instruction for men and women like you and i who want to be faithful to our living god in dark times when things aren't normal when things seem to be unraveling a little bit let me give you a few examples you'll have to kind of study the book yourself to get them all god speaks of the of the arrogance of people he says look at the proud they trust in themselves and their lives are crooked. Now notice this phrase, but the righteous will live by faith. Does that sound familiar? Yeah, we often attribute it to Paul. Paul, 600 plus years later, quotes it a number of times in his writings. He loves this phrase. You know who else did? Martin Luther. Martin Luther did. This is what he said, and this is a direct quote. Before those words, the righteous will live by faith. Before those words broke upon my mind, I hated God. Can you imagine? This is Martin Luther talking. I hated God and was angry with him. But when by the spirit of God I understood those words that just shall live by faith. Now, he says this twice. It goes over to the next slide here. It's not a repeat on my part, it's a repeat on the part of Martin Luther. He repeats it again. The just shall live by faith. Then I fell born again like a new man. I entered through the open doors into the very paradise of God. And the great reformation of the church begins. The just shall live by faith. Another way of saying that is that a true Christ follower will live in response to God's leading, will navigate through life, will make choices and judgments, develop and inform relationships according to their faith in God. I will live obedient to the expressions of the Word of God. I will respond to the impulses of the Holy Spirit in my life. I will live in submission to the Lordship of Christ. I will live by faith. Others may choose the road of arrogance. I choose the road of faith. I must do it intentionally. I can't fool around and be seduced by all that other stuff out there. I've got to make a break with the way people are living out there and stand against the tide of culture. Do you realize what this means? It means that people who truly follow God trust him enough to be obedient. Even when life doesn't make a bit of sense... When you feel like you've been betrayed, remember the righteous, the just, will live by faith. That means that you trust God enough to be able to forgive others like he tells us to. When you watch as somebody gets ahead of you by doing wrong, remember the righteous, the just, live by faith. That means you don't do the same thing they do in order to catch up, but you continue to do what is right, knowing by faith that God will reward your obedience. When you're being controlled by a habit that is over overpowering you. Remember, the righteous, the just live by faith. That means that you trust God enough to know he will give you the strength to exercise some self-control and provide the resources to you to help you break it. Habakkuk says righteous people live in conformity and submission to the claims of their faith, the life of obedience, faithfulness to God. God also lets Habakkuk know that there will be justice. He does a series of woes. Jesus did a series of woes. So does God through Habakkuk. Woe to him who builds a city with bloodshed and crime. Has not the Lord Almighty determined that people's labor is only fuel for the fire, that the nations exhaust themselves for nothing? For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Sometimes we look upon our world and it looks like the bad guys are winning. Through Habakkuk, God tells us, yes, I know for the moment it looks like that, but things aren't always what they seem. The Babylonians are swarming the countryside, and the people have lost all of their moral and spiritual resistance. But I want to tell you, folks, there is coming a day when the whole earth which looks bad today, which looks like it's spiraling out of control today, the whole earth will be filled with the glory of the Lord. You've got to live. You've got to live 2021 with that prospect, with that anticipation, with that hope. The glory is coming. And when it comes, it's going to be like a tsunami that will cover the whole earth. Every place you look, every place you go, glory will be the theme song. The godly person lives in that prospect. We know from the New Testament that what Habakkuk is saying here is that Jesus is coming again. And when he comes, there will be a new heaven and a new earth. We get to live. We get the privilege of living in the anticipation of the explosion of the kingdom of God in all of its glory. Further yet, the Lord says, of what value is an idol carved by a craftsman? For the one who makes it trusts his own creation. He makes idols that cannot speak. Woe to the one who says to wood, come to life or to a lifeless stone. Wake up. Can it give guidance? It's covered with gold and silver. There is no breath in it. The Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth be silent before him. It may look like all these idols, and we have so many in our world, are out there controlling life. But the biblical person looks to the Lord and knows to the depths of their soul that God is on the throne. While everybody else is noisy and raucous, the biblical person for a moment can still become silent before the Lord on his throne. The Lord is in his temple. Let all the earth keep silent before Him. The person with a passionate, a passionate perspective, perspective of our world, learns for the moment to be silent before God, before the God of heaven and earth. One more nugget. One more nugget. Let's look for a moment as we conclude at Habakkuk's response now to all that God has shown him. He says, I have heard all about you, Lord. I am filled now with awe by your amazing works. My heart pounds, my lips quiver, decay creeps into my my bones and my legs tremble, yet I will wait. Habakkuk says, I am humbled, I am in awe, I am shaken at the prospect, yet I will wait even though the fig trees have no blossoms and there are no grapes on the vine, even though the olive crop fails and the fields are empty and barren, even though the flocks die in the fields and the cattle burns, the cattle barns are empty, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in the God of my salvation. Do you remember how the book began? It began in gloom. It began with Habakkuk crying out, everything's going to the cats. That's for... I know the expression is dogs, but Stefan's here. Now notice how it's ending. But I will be joyful. I will wait. I will be patient. I will be silent. I will pray. I will trust. In the first, it's like, God, what are you doing? What are you doing? It's a mess. Where are you? In the end, I will be joyful. I will wait. I will be patient. I will be silent. I will pray. I will trust. That's the perspective of a godly person in a turbulent time. Then watch the finishing crescendo of this book now. The sovereign Lord, key word, of course, sovereign. It's a theological word that speaks of a God who has all power, all knowledge, who can do everything he wants in the time that he chooses. He will not be rushed. He will not be hustled. He will not be intimidated. He is the great God above all. He is the God of the universe. The sovereign Lord is my strength not produce not flocks not portfolios not financial assets not popularity or power the sovereign lord is my strength he makes my feet like the feet of a deer he enables me to go on to the heights friends you're going to be disappointed this week this month this year people will let you down finances will fluctuate something will not turn out the way that you thought it should what are you going to do Perhaps it's time to take the longer, higher view, to look at things from God's perspective. Though COVID continues in 2021, though I've suffered grievous loss, though my social support runs out, though I'm unemployed, though I'm divorced, though relationships have disappointed me, though I didn't get the parents or the spouse or the children I hope for, though I have cancer, nevertheless, I will rejoice in the Lord. God is my strength. He makes my feet like the feet of the deer. He takes me to the heights. Perhaps it's time to see what things look like from the watchtower. See the vision of what God is doing in our midst. And then live by faith that he will accomplish it to see that there is no circumstance in this world that has the power to separate us from the love of God, to see what God has called us to be and have faith that God will do what God wants to do and to see that it can happen. It can happen around us and through us and in us and sometimes, yes, in spite of us. And we will find out to our great joy, people, that in the world we thought God had abandoned. God is at work that in the church we thought depended so much on our own energies, God is at work. God is always at work using all of us flawed and unworthy people and that in our very own lives, our unhealthy, overly busy, physically exhausted, emotionally drained, spiritually dried up lives, even there, yes, even there, God is at work and we can stand for God. And stand for God and stand again. Thanks again for joining us for our weekend message. If you have any needs or prayer requests, please give us a call at 204 326 9020 or email prayer at Once again, our phone number is 204 326 9020 and the email address is prayer at myselfland.com.